never had this happen to me before. Um, I've heard people say it, but and uh, you kind of think it sounds cool when they say it. Um, but I, I'm, I'm not. Pre- I'm, I'm going to change what I'm preaching on, um, and only in part, uh, <laughs> which is why I'm stumbling a bit. <laughs> only in part am I going to change it. Um, we were in the book of James, and let me tell you my thought processes. I read the cha- chapter five of the book of James has a reference to prayer in it. Uh, so if you read the end, and, and as we've looked at the book of James, we realize that um, James picks things up and puts them down, then picks things up and then puts them down. Yeah. He, he, he flows with almost like a pro- the Proverbs. He's not giving you a narrative of what's going on. He's just giving you these wisdom statements uh, and these Proverbs. And there is a reference um, to prayer. Uh, is anyone in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is anyone sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And then Sheldon asked me, um, on your last week here, so we're, we're leaving on the 17th um, of December uh, at the moment, <laughs> although we booked with a flight company that potentially might go into administration next week. So it's an interesting time. <laughs> it's an interesting time to pray, you know, when you're, when you're there. Um, and uh, so we may fly on the 17th. Um, and uh, we, we, Sheldon said, would you preach on the, on the 15th? Um, I said, yeah, yeah, I'll preach on the 15th. And I said, I'm going to preach on um, this scripture. My house will be called a house of prayer for people of all nations. Um, so I looked at that uh, this morning. And then Diana will tell you the last few days I've been battling with what to preach and what not to preach. And uh, she prayed for me last night before we went to bed. You know, God give him wisdom. He's waking up in the morning to preach. And I know he doesn't know what he's going to say. So, you know, help us all, Lord. You know, that kind of prayer. She was praying for me, you know. And, um, and the question I've had all week, and I'm kind of jumping between these two scriptures, and I thought I was only going to reference Mark chapter 11, but I think we need to sit there based on what God's been saying to us in the worship and what God has been doing amongst us, the testimonies that have been shared, the things that have, have been said. The question that God has asked me this week continually, he's asked me to do two things. He, he, he's asked me this one question, why would you not pray? And why are you not praying? Why would you not? Why would you not pray? Is the question God keeps asking me. Why would you not pray? Lay out your excuses for me, Steve. Lay them out. Put them down before me, and I'm going to talk to you about each one as you lay them out. So I laid out the reasons why I don't pray. I put them down before God. I wrote them on paper before the Lord. Uh, and, and, And one by one, God has dismantled my arguments for why I don't pray. The primary one being, Lord, I don't have time. I'm busy with your work, Lord. I am busy with your work, Lord, and I often find I don't have time. That got very short shrift with the Lord as I was praying that one through. And then I pulled out the, the, the reason I don't pray. I said with, to the Lord in vulnerability, but God, we didn't just stop at two children. We went to three, Lord. <laughs> and Lord, if we had stayed at two, I had the time to pray, Lord. In fact, you knew when we had two children, I would withdraw and I would pray. Jesus did not have three children, Lord. He did not have three children. And, and so the early mornings for him were free. My early mornings are not free, Lord. The beds are wet. The children are awake. The cat is scratching. My cat last week got diagnosed with asthma. Whose cat has asthma? My cat has asthma. Lord, my cat comes in in the middle of the night and he wheezes for his pump, Lord. This is, I'm telling you, this is my life. I say, Lord, I, I, I can't, Lord, I don't, I don't have time to pray. And so 
show them will tell you this. If you're really, really struggling on what you're going to preach on on Sunday morning, you wake up early. <laughs> so this morning, I was awake early. And I even Googled, what time does Need Coffee Shop open? When is it open? Because I'm going to be at the door ready for my coffee to prepare. And I, as I sat down to prepare, with my excuse in play, Lord, the reason that I don't pray is because of my three children. I know, some of you are laughing already. You know that God dismantled that this morning over my coffee, right? And God drew me to the story of the mother of John and Charles Wesley. Now, some of you will have heard of the Wesleys. They, were, they, were, um, they are known uh, as being revivalists. They actually critically intervened at a moment in, in the UK's history. Um, many people would say they stopped the French Revolution that took place. They stopped a violent revolution taking place in the whole of the nation because of the power of the gospel. I have heard lots of stories about them, but the one story you hear about their mother is the fact that she used to pray with an apron over her head. Okay? That's all I knew. Unfortunately, this morning, the Lord told me, go, go research that lady. Go find out what she did. Go find out how she used to pray. When she was very young, she made an agreement with the Lord for every hour she spent in entertainment, she would double that time in prayer and Bible study. In every hour she spent in her life, she would double that time in prayer and Bible study. Now, I came with my three children. I put my three children on the table, and the Lord said to me, no problem, Steve, but if you want to play that game, this lady has 19 kids. <laughs> I said, no, that's not fair. Now, that's not fair. Different era, different era. I said, that's not fair. And then, and then, and then, and then I said, Lord, that's, it's tough. And he said, yeah. Nine of her children died. Nine of her children died. Imagine the suffering. Imagine the suffering. So she has ten children that survived, but nine children have died. She has to look after ten children. She, I, said, I said, Lord, but if we dedicate our time to you, how, how do I keep the, the, the kids in check here? How do I make sure that they've got special time? She rotated her time for her kids so that every single one of them had an hour on rotation with her before bedtime. So 10 children, every 10 weeks they rotate an hour with mum before bedtime, an hour with mum before bedtime, an hour with mum before bedtime. She's going there. To make that worse, she's married to a vicar. She's married to a leader of a church. Now, anybody who's married to a leader of the church knows that, that that's an excuse in itself. <laughs> I'm married to the leader. That comes with lots of responsibilities. comes right there. Her her husband was not known as a very, uh, this sounds harsh, but he wasn't known as a very effective preacher. He wasn't, in fact, his congregation was so upset sometimes with the messages that he preached, they were so annoyed with him and so upset with him, they burnt down his house twice. I'm <laughs> <laughs> just putting it out there, right? Now, that's my point. There there lies my point. <laughs> Imagine Sheldon preaches so badly that we decide we're going to burn down his house. Not once, but twice. Now, not only that, you don't, you, you, that, that would be bad enough. But imagine when he has to talk to Kathleen about it. Imagine when Kathleen has his 10 kids and says, your sermon stinks so bad. You're saying so the wrong stuff that these 10 kids are now struggling to know where to go each day and where to live because the sermons are so bad, right? To make it worse, 
He was trying to write a, uh, uh, um, a what's the word, uh, commentary on the book of Job. So he kept withdrawing from the family. He took long absences from the family. The, the article I read about him was, the sad irony is, he wrote, he wrote a commentary on a book about suffering and he left his family to suffer. That's quite harsh, isn't it? You don't want that written about you. So she is battling there on, on her own and, uh, and, and, and struggling with these kids and trying to raise these kids and trying to educate these kids. She believed that her girls should receive exactly the same education as her boys. She dedicated her life to... Do, she, she taught these, uh, her children two different languages. Like, I think it was Latin and, and she taught another language, classical languages to, to her kids. This is a lady who said, she had one condition with the kids, one condition. When mummy puts the apron over her head, she's creating a tent of meeting with the Lord. Do you know how often she would do it? She would do it for two hours every day. I just want you to hold there for a second. Before you say, yeah, but this is legalistic and da 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 da, da. We, we don't need to be given the amount of hours to pray and yada, yada, yada. She said, no one, uh, she, there is no obligation on her to pray for two hours a day. I doubt she had, I doubt she even had an hour's worth of entertainment, do you, don't you? I, I doubt she even had it. I doubt she even had it. But she made a vow before God to me. So she would pull over the, the, the apron over her head and make that her tent of meeting place with the reading of the word. Do you know what? She was actually a very good communicator of the scriptures, ironically, because her husband clearly wasn't. <laughs> that she started an informal Bible study. I mean, who thinks that? You've got 10 kids, you pray for two hours a day, you've had the suffering of losing nine children, and in your spare time, you start an informal Bible study. I don't know. Who it, I'm just saying my excuses were dropping by the second at this point for why I don't reach out to prayer more often. And, and she started an informal Bible study in her home every Sunday. And she would gather up to 200 people in her kitchen. In her kitchen for an informal study of the word. Why? How big's the kitchen? Right, exactly. I mean, she's got 10 kids though, right? So the kitchen's a fair size. The ones that keep getting burnt down, maybe she's just like, I don't know, you know? She's lost a few, so. I'm, and, I'm, and, I'm, and I'm struck by this. I'm struck by this, why? Because... You won't hear many, you will hear some, but you won't hear, I, I bet none of you know her name. Susanna. Okay. But, but, I, but, but, I'll, but I tell you the truth. Everybody, everybody in the nation I'm from will know the name of two of her sons. One of her sons preached to over a million people. He never used a microphone. Sometimes he would preach to 30,000 people at a time with no microphone. It's only ever happened to me once I've had to preach without a microphone. I preached to 1,500 people. I had to warm up with the worship band before to get my vocal cords ready. They said to me, if you preach without a mic to this many people, you're going to wreck your voice. You literally wreck your voice. They led a revival where churches today still stand in the wake of that revival. Still stand. There are movements that still stand in the wake of what those two boys did. Her other son wrote hymns that are still sung today. He was the equivalent of Hillsong worship. I'm not joking. I'm serious, right? People knew all of his song and worship there. Why am, I, why am I leaning on this point? Because I firmly believe this, and you won't hear me say things like this. For such a time of this, God is raising up intercessors. We will never know the impact that that had on those two boys to see their mum pull over the apron and meet with the Lord every single day. To prioritize that above suffering, to prioritize that above excuses, 
to prioritize that above every other legitimate action she had to get done that day, to prioritize that above the need of others, to prioritize that above her own need, to say, of most of all, Lord, I want to be in your presence and I want to find myself in a tent of meeting place. When Jesus is, is, is just after his triumphal entry in Mark chapter 11, he gives us a lesson on prayer in between cleansing the temple. It says this, uh, Mark chapter 11, verse 12. The next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, the assumption being when a tree is in leaf, it should have figs, he went to find if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to that tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves, and he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. As he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for people of all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Just pause there. That's quite a strange thing to happen. The issue everybody speaks about here is they were buying and selling and they were, they were probably making a profit off people in the temple. People are having to walk far distances to come and make sacrifice. They are having to work in many different uh, currencies. So they operate a system that actually probably would be quite helpful. That you can come and you can not bring your goat or your doves for a long, long distance. You'd be able to come and exchange. You could come in different money and you'd be able to use the right money that was needed for the system and everything that's there. There is in every depiction of this for me, this idea of us talking about righteous anger. Because everybody's, why does Jesus get angry? Why does he whip the cord and turn the tables? And the focus is always there. But please note what Jesus says to them. Have you not seen that it was written, my house will be called a house of prayer for people of all nations? You've made it a den of robbers. You've made this area here a den of robbers. But why does he call them back to a scripture that says that the house of the Lord will be a house of prayer for people of all nations? There's just an interesting note in my Bible that I really make me think this through. It says this in the study Bible on verse 15. And verse 15 tells you, on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area. And it tells you what the temple area was. The temple area was the court of the Gentiles. The only part of the temple in which the Gentiles could worship God and gather for prayer. It was the place for God-fearing foreigners where they had established the buying and selling was preventing them to come and pray there. It was preventing the foreigners who God had given provision for. It was preventing the Gentile from having a place of access to prayer. It was presenting them from coming before the Lord, those who were God-fearing. When we come on a Sunday morning in the light of the xenophobic violence that goes on in a nation, and we say there are no foreigners amongst us, all of us are brothers and sisters. It's not a political statement, it's just a gospel statement. We, 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 we're not talking politics at that stage. We are, I understand that, but we're not. Because we are just simply applying a, a kingdom principle that says, above all else, no matter where you are from, I see you as a son and a daughter of God. 
I see you as someone who is created in the image of God. Regardless of what status is for the government to decide, sure. Status, where I can go, where I can't go, if I've got a visa, if I haven't got a visa, where my visa is, all of that stuff, I understand that. But before the Lord, when we come to worship before the throne, there will be every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. Every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. Why, in light of what we have discussed, do you think that xenophobic violence erupts at this point? I understand you'll give me reasons. I understand you'll say, but it's about this, Steve. You don't understand the history here. It's about that, Steve. You don't understand the policies there. It's about that, Steve, there. I think sometimes we've got to lay that down a little bit and look beyond it and look at the spiritual climate of what's going on here. We've got to ask ourselves, what is God doing? God, where are you? Where is the enemy trying to disrupt? Where is exactly what we were just describing here? This, the battle is won. That's what we were talking about last week. The spiritual battle in the heavenlies has already been won. But when you're in the last throes of the battle, it's almost when it becomes most ferocious. When an enemy knows that they are defeated, they become most spiteful. When an enemy knows they are gone, they just want to take as much, do as much destruction as they can on their way down. If the call, I, I'm not from this nation, I'm from the UK, as you all know that. Since I've been here, if I had 10 rand for every time someone's told me there's going to be a revival that goes from the Cape all the way up through Africa, I'd be rich. Just so you know, right? I'm not saying that to you. You are saying that to me. You are saying there's a call on this city that will see a revival, that will stretch through a nation, that will impact a continent. And it will be the church that goes as the forerunner, as the example of what can happen. What happened this morning when we so... You know, it struck me. There are churches that I could have made exactly that same statement in. Go and pray with someone who's from a different nation to your own, and they wouldn't have been able to do it. There wouldn't have been anyone. There would not have been anybody from a different nation to their own. Can you not see what God is modelling amongst us? If we have the eyes to see, we know that wherever else on this Sunday morning there was division and there was economic separation and there was a, 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 a vice put between people, that people would be upset with one another, that people would be offended by each other, that people would not integrate, that people would not mingle. The Lord would say, can the church not come together and be the example for the nation? My house will be a house of prayer for people of all nations. If I reflect back to you that the call upon this city is to be an example to a country, then to a nation, and then to a continent, it would make perfect sense that the enemy would try to rob you of exactly the blessing that you're called to bring. But here's what I want to ask you. Here's what I, I strongly believe God would ask us as a church. Will we unify and put our shawls over our head and find a place where we're going to pray for this first? There'll be runners that will go for this. There will be people that will go and spread this message. There will be those who will go to different countries from this place. We are already seeing them being raised up and being sent out. There will be people of different nations that will go back to nations like myself that they've been called from, who have caught something from here, and will take it back there. There will be others who will go to new nations that are not their own and will bring something of what we've captured here and take it there. But God would ask you who are here, 
Will you not prioritize the place of prayer and pull your shawl over your head and make sure that in the secret place you have a place of prayer that is highly prioritized? God would say to you, prioritize prayer in this house. Prioritize it, prioritize it, and prioritize it. Don't look to the number of people that are coming to your gatherings. Look to the number of people that are coming when they're called to pray. Look for the number of us who are finding our needs. And I want you to know that this is a very vulnerable place. It's vulnerable for me when I come here. One of the last things I want to preach to you about is prayer. Because it makes me feel exposed. It makes me feel vulnerable. It makes me feel guilty. When I read passages like, don't, uh, you know, pray with the prayers of faith. In James chapter 5, it says that go to the elders when, when we are sick and they will pray prayers of faith over you. When Jesus gives the example of the fig tree here, he goes to the fig tree and says, pray without doubt. When I read those verses, I read them and I focus on myself. I don't have enough faith. I'm always doubting. Why? Because the enemy would love to turn your eyes away from God when you pray onto you. He'd either like you to be the center of all of your prayers, or he'd like you to be the facilitator for all of your prayers, or he'd like you to be the, 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 the all of the weight must rely on you to pray for others. I've now learned that when I come to pray, it is nothing of me and everything of him. When I ask in the name of Jesus, I'm asking in the name of Jesus. When I pray in the name of Jesus, I'm asking for Jesus to come and bring heaven on earth. Exactly what we asked when we were praying in the, in the, in the worship. We are praying for heaven to come and, and inhabit earth. It says this, the chief priests and, the, and uh, the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him because of the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. It must not be escaped that one of the main reasons people get incredibly angry with Jesus is because they know that he is going to disrupt the power that they have. They have made, the teachers at that point, had made themselves the, the end of, of uh, 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 on the peak, on the pinnacle of religious activity. They had ensured that everything was set, that the establishment was set, that they would be the people's facilitators in that way, that, the, that, uh, that they would be the top of the chain, that they would have all of the knowledge, that they would have all the attention, that they would have all of that. God would say to you, are you prepared that your name would not be known? But perhaps you'll pray for sons and daughters whose names will be known. Perhaps we will be those. There was someone, uh, Sean, I don't know if Sean's here this morning. Sean and I, Sean Malemu and I were out for breakfast um, on Friday and he was uh, speaking to a guy that came before. And Sean introduced me as the guy that helped him to go to England. It was nice, but it, you know, and you're a bit embarrassed. I was like, well, kind of, it's all well like that, but not really. Uh, and the guy, and he, the guy saw I was embarrassed. You know, he took my hand. Took, this is a bit weird when people do this, right? They take your hand and they make you look at them. He took my hand and I could see what he was doing. He made me look and he said, hey, I want to say thank you to you and I want to tell you something. When people look at an orchard, they always look at the apples but they ne as, as the how many trees there are, right? As to how great it is. He said, but they never focus on how many seeds are inside every single one of those apples. He said, may you do many more things where you've got no clue of the amount of seeds that are inside it but you're going to birth something that's greater than that. I said, wow, sure, look. Yeah, may I do that? Yeah, sure. I want you to know that God would say, when you come on your knees in prayer, whether it be on your own, whether you, be, you, become a, you will 
you will, as we, as we prayed last time on holiness, we mustn't, as I pr- uh, preached last time about holiness, we mustn't underestimate what the scripture is saying when it says that the spirit of the living God would come to dwell inside of you. Where you are, you carry the presence of God. Where we speak, we can, we can speak into situations and see them totally changed and transformed. So I asked myself this simple question, why do I not pray? And then I said to God, God, what exactly do you want me to say on prayer? I, I, I don't really know what to even say. And God just kept coming back to me time and time again. Just tell the people how simple it is. Just tell the people, don't know. I read books. I tell you, hey, I like reading a book or two. You know that. Sure, I got my books on prayer quickly from the garage. Hey, get the best ones. Get them all in. Okay, I've got Philip Yancey there. I've got one on Unanswered Prayer by Pete Gregg there, two classics. I'm like, good. I've got other books there by Packer. I'm there. I'm ready to read all the things. And God, I kept reading and that sermon wasn't coming. And God just said to me, I just want you to tell people how simple it is. I just want you to tell people how simple it is. I just literally, I I don't really want you to do anything more than that, Steve. I just want you to advocate for prayer. And I want you to tell people it's simple. And I want you to ask people to pray. That's it. I don't have anything else, by the way. I'm just going to rotate around those three themes. I've changed my sermon. I've got a good sermon on James. But it wasn't, it obviously wasn't that good. So, because God didn't want that one today. I just, in all humility, I want to come before you and say, I don't really have that much to say today. Apart from, have we not allowed everything of the world to distract us from the one key thing we could be called to do? The one key place we could be called. If I honestly told you that Jesus was going to appear at some point today at the Bay City Church in person, he was going to be here and he was going to sit and you were going to be able to have an audience with him one-on-one. I want to ask you how many of you would go home before he arrived. You wouldn't. You wouldn't go home. He could come at three o'clock in the morning. You'd be ready. You'd be lining up. You'd be there. Think how long the queues are every day in home affairs just to get a passport sorted. People are ready. They are early. You go with your pay. I've applied for 12 visas since I've been here. I could work in that place. I know. I, I even know the paperwork that they don't know is on the list, but it's on the list. I even asked, I was so arrogant last time I went, I even asked, I said to the lady, that's a good application, isn't it? You didn't ask me any questions. And she just like, I said, would you tell my wife? Because I did work hard on it. We were just laughing like that because I'm prepared and I know. And then in truth, I could sit and have an audience with he who put the earth. the, The scripture said that the world was created for Jesus and through Jesus. And I could have an audience with him every single day, one on one. I can create a tent of meeting just by raising a shawl over my head. Even without, you know where my tent of meeting is most of the time? Scott just told me, be honest and keep it simple. My tent of meeting is Constantia Neck. I can tell you, the other day, I drove Constantia Neck seven times in one day. I know you Cape Tonians are scared to go to the other side of the mountain. I just want to tell you, it's not like, there's nothing weird over there. It's still Cape Town. I know everybody's like, sure, you drive to the other side of the mountain to take your kids to school. I'm like, yeah, there's a road on the mountain. You know, I don't literally hike over the mountain, you know. You guys are very big on this whole mountain thing, but... Um, I drive Constantia Neck to take my kids to school. And very early on, you've heard me say this before, God just sometimes arrests me, just turn the radio off. Turn it off totally. Just sit in silence in the car. My car becomes my, my tent of meeting. Becomes my place of meeting with the Lord. It just, it just flows for me. I, I don't know. My wife also says I only talk when I'm in the car because I don't have to look. I just, I just I find it easy. I find it, I'm, not, I'm a very slow driver. Some of you know. It's because I'm just, I'm just praying. I'm thinking, guys, like, this is Constantia Neck. Get out of the way. I'm like, sorry, sorry. I'm just praying. You know what I mean? 
I'm there because it's my tent of meeting. It's the place where I go regularly. I'm going to encourage you in prayer. If we are going to be a house of prayer for people of all nations, we need to entertain this place of prayer, this regularity of prayer. Jesus prioritizes prayer. If there's one thing we know about Jesus, he prioritizes prayer. There was a, there's a story in the books I did read. It's in Philip Yancey's book called Prayer, which is a very good book on prayer. Um, and, it, and, he, and he tells this story of a man, he was, he was suffering with a terminal illness. And he calls the, the, uh, the pastor to come and meet with him in the morning, or the chaplain to come and meet with him in the morning. He's very distressed. He says, I feel so guilty, I feel terrible this morning. And, and they, they, the, the um, chaplain says to him, why do you feel bad? Like, what's happened to you this morning? Um, obviously, he's used to dealing with these end-of-life issues. He says, I was awake all night, and I was just angry with God, and I was, I was talking to God, and I was, I was rude, and I was, I was just speaking out of turn, and I was wrestling with the Lord. I was, I was just so, and this morning, I've woken up, and I feel so guilty. I feel so bad about it. And the counselor says something. This is, the man says, this is totally transformed the way he thought. The counselor says, oh, that's okay. That's okay. You were just doing something we call in the church prayer. He says, you were just doing something. And the guy says, I don't understand what you mean. I was angry with God. I was wrestling with God. He says to him this. He says, the opposite of love in this circumstance is not hate. It's indifference. I want you to hear that again. He says, the opposite of love in this circumstance is not hate. It's indifference. Yes, he was worked up. Yes, he was wrestling with the Lord. But I want you to know that that's probably a more accurate biblical prayer than actually sometimes our polite-natured, good-natured, well-intended prayers. Please remember that the people that pray long, in Jesus actually uh, uh, like addresses them for their long and boring prayers. I've sat in some prayer meetings and thought, I wonder whether Jesus would rebuke you for that one. That was long. That was long. Jesus specifically says like, about them, that, but the reason he rebukes them is because they're really just praying for their entertainment of others. Yeah. They're praying for the ears of others. Yeah. So God would love to hear you pr- sincerely praying to him long. No problem with that. But don't start praying for the entertainment of others. Pray for one audience and one audience only. Next thing, mistake we make is we pray for the correction of others. Oh, we've prayed that prayer before. Some of you, I pray this over my son all the time. God, I just pray that you make this guy patient, Lord. Patient, God. Give him patience, Lord. I'm praying, God, that, that he would realize that it's not good to speak to his mummy like that. I pray, Lord, that he would... Uh, all I'm doing, I'm not really praying. I'm just hoping he catches a drift here. I'm hoping he catches a drift. But I'm not actually praying at that point. If I'm praying, I speak life over him. God, you've called this young man to be a leader. You've called this young man to grow in faith. You've called this young man to grow in humility. You've called this young man. You know, someone gave me an A4 prophecy for my son on the day of his dedication. A4 prophecy of what God had told me that this boy is going to go and do. I'm holding it for him. That one day when he comes to me and tells me, Dad, I'm thinking of this, that God wants me to do this, I can pull that piece of paper out and say, you always, you're always called to that, son. You're always called to that. Go for it. You were always called to that and go for it. But don't pray for the correction of others. Just pray faith into them. Just pray the word into them. The other thing is we, don't, we say we don't know what to pray. Lord, I don't know what to pray. How do we pray in faith? Was a question I asked myself this week. If the prayer is meant to be in faith and it's not meant to doubt, because we're told as it go on, Jesus gives the explanation for the withered fig tree. In the morning they went along and they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. 
Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. I tell you the truth. If anyone says to this mountain, go throw itself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your father in heaven may forgive your sins. There's an important lesson there in forgiveness. Don't forget it at the end. Is it, it's not the focus of my sermon, but don't forget it. There's an f- important interplay here that you need to learn. When you come before God, your repentance is important. Your understanding and forgiveness of others is incredibly important to your prayers being heard. James chapter 5 actually says something quite tender here that we might miss. If it, it says... If any of you is in trouble, you should pray. If anyone is happy, let him sing songs of praise. If any one of you is sick, you should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. Question mark there. What is a prayer that's in faith? What makes the difference? Well, I have a question there. We'll talk about it, but I have a question there. Then it goes on to say this. The Lord will raise him. If he sinned, he'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. I just want to ask you a simple question. When was the last time you confessed sin to anybody in this church? I don't mean you had a conversation. I don't mean you told what you were struggling with. I don't mean you went for a natter over a coffee. I don't mean you went for advice. I mean, when was the last time you specifically went up to somebody else that you are in community with and you said, bro, I just really need to repent. I just need to tell you, this is where I'm going in my life and we need to pray together because I don't need that person to forgive my sin. No, that's not scriptural. I need Jesus to forgive my sin. I don't need to go through anybody to forgive. But I think, so then I have to ask, well, what is James getting at here? Why do I need to confess my sin to anybody but Jesus? I sense what James is wanting to get to is the point where in church we have the vulnerability to be able to go to one another and say, hold me accountable. Hold me accountable. And in prayer, pray for me. Because this is going to hold me back. And if I am held back, the community will be held back. Because we're trying to go somewhere together as a community. I just want to ask you, it seems to be a scriptural instruction. And I wonder whether it's one that we just don't do. I don't do it. I don't think any of you could say, yeah, Steve's come up to me and, and, and said, Would, could, could I just confess this to you? I'm praying it through with God. Would you pray with me? I want to confess this to you. I've come to people and I've asked them for help with the assumption that I'm already paying, praying a prayer of repentance. But it just struck me. And then I asked God, what does it mean to pray in faith then? What does it mean to not doubt? And obviously the, the definition for faith is given in Hebrews chapter 11, 1. You know, and, and we, we understand this, but, but, but deeper than that, I felt God say to me um, uh, this thing. In prayer, you're going to run into suffering. You're forced to face it. But when you pray, perhaps you're not to be consumed with the outcome. When you pray, Steve, God said to me, don't consume yourself with the outcome. The outcome is my business. It's not your business. The outcome is my business. I'm God. You're man. Let's just get some perspective here. You don't tell me what to do. You can hold me accountable to my word. We can hold God accountable to the word. We can pray the word. So if you don't know what to pray, pray the word. But, but let's not get into this naming and claiming that's not in the word. 
You, co- you can't tell God what to do. When you're going to pray, unless you're going to ho- go back to the word, we cannot tell God what to do. We are very much consumed with the outcome. God said to me, don't come to me consumed with the outcome. Because I said, Lord, is it that I was lacking in faith here? Is it that I was doubting? Is it that why, why didn't we see that? Or why didn't we see there? And I felt God say to me this. Don't be consumed with the outcome, but be consumed with your posture. Be consumed with the way you come. Your faith is determined by your posture before God and your priority of prayer before God. When a lady who has 10 children says to you, she takes two hours out of her day to pray, you must understand that like, there's a lot to do in that day. What, what, what is being said there is, I have a posture and a priority of this. Do you know that iPhone's got a scary feature? How many of you have got iPhones, just out of interest? I reckon a few of you, right? I don't know about the Android phone or the Samsung and all of this, but I know on the iPhone, you can go into the settings and you can go to go in your settings and you go to screen time. Yeah. Ah, some of you know, right? Yeah. You know when it most reminds me, when I come into church every Sunday, <laughs> yeah, same for you. When I come into church every Sunday, it will tell me, hey, this is how many hours a day you spend on your phone this week. Now, I was sure mine was bugged. So I went to my wife and said, I won't even tell you how many hours. I mean, we're talking hours, not minutes. That's a problem, right? <laughs> I'm telling you, you look in there, you're going to be talking hours and not minutes. I showed my wife my phone and I said to my wife, there's something wrong with my phone here. Look, like, this phone thinks I'm spending hours a day, a day. I'm sure it means a week because uh, I don't go on the phone that much. I said, come here, you're on Instagram all the time. Show me your one, babe. Like, trying to compare, make myself feel better. <laughs> so I look at hers. And she said, oh, it's worse than that, Steve. She said, you can go into the detail, and it will tell you which app you're spending most of your time on. Right? And, and how many times you open your phone per day. Right? So on average, I was opening my phone 77 times a day. I'm like, oh my word. I'm just being vulnerable with you, right? This is my first confession in church. To, 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 I'm just fulfilling James. 77 times a day. So I have the audacity, I have the audacity to tell the Lord, I'm too busy to pray, but I can answer my phone, open my phone 77 times. On average, I get 177 messages on WhatsApp. 177. Most of the times I open my phone, it's to go straight on WhatsApp, it's telling me. The next one is to read the news app, the BBC news app. My goodness. I am farming hours of my life reading through the news. But ask me this, how much of your time have you spent praying for the president of the nation? Because it's a scriptural demand that I pray for the leaders of the nation. It's not a scriptural demand that I read the BBC News web app. I'm just being honest with you. This, uh, like for me, it was phone, right? That I needed to... Uh, I think we need to ruthlessly eradicate distraction and some of the entertainment from our lives so that we can prioritise the place of prayer. And I'm just preaching to myself. It, it, it's, it's probably not normal that... That I can quote, I can, I can tell you more football results this weekend than I can memorizing of scripture. I've memorized, memorized the Arsenal first team. 
I can even tell you other clubs that they played for before they played for the club that they play for now. I can even tell you who the first substitute is likely to come on on the bench and why. So I have an incredible capacity for memorizing. Why on earth have I not used it to memorize scripture? Because I tell you, when suffering kicks in, no one's going to give a damn who's playing right back for Arsenal. No one cares. No one cares. In two years' time, do you think anybody's going to care about the result yesterday? No one. Yeah. Even if we go on, even if you go on to win the World Cup, no one will remember the first game. They'll just remember the final. What are we prioritizing in the place of prayer? What are we placing that seems to be more important than prayer? What are we running down? Because in the scriptures, this is what I see in prayer. I see bargaining with God. I see arguing with God. I see intimacy with God. I see passion with God. I see honesty with God. I see ranting at God. I see wrestling with God. I see dealing with disappointment with God. I see persistency in prayer. I see joy in prayer. I see prayers that are written down. I see prayers that are prayed in public. I see prayers that are prayed in private. I see prayers that are prayed in groups. I see prayers that are sung over groups. I see prayers that are given to kings. I see prayers that are prayed by by, uh, common people. That is what I see in prayer. And yet if I said to you, what in our nation, where, where do we go to be intimate, to be passionate, to be honest, to wrestle with our disappointments? You'd probably say therapy. Well, you go to therapy. Go to therapy. I'm not telling you not to go to doctors, by the way, but where do we go when you're sick? We go to a doctor. Where do we go? Where do we go when we're suffering with our finances? We go to a bank, we go to a friend, we go and ask our advice. We have geared ourselves up to indoctrinate us from prayer, to indoctrinate us from going to prayer. Yet Jesus tells us, go throw yourself, you can tell that mountain, go throw itself into the sea if you don't doubt in your heart and believe that what it says will happen will be done for him. The more time you spend with Jesus in prayer, the more time you spend asking the Spirit to intercede for you, the more time you spend praying, the more time you spend interceding into your situations, the more likely it is that the mountain will move. The more likely it is that your prayer will be tuned in, that you will pray a prayer of faith. I've come to this point that actually a prayer of faith is just, a prayer of faith is the prayer that faces away from myself. And says, God, you will intervene. That is a moment of faith comes in that intimacy of prayer. Where I'm able to say, God, you intervene. God, you intervene. I am flat out of ideas. I am flat out of transformational uh, uh, notions. This country, the countries of the world need fresh ideas. We are flat out of ideas for how to transform the nation. We have tried and tried and tried. What it needs is a people who will pull a shawl over their head and say, we are going at the Bay City Church to be a people of prayer. We are going to be known as a house of prayer for all nations. We are going to be known as a place that will turn over tables of injustice, that will create a place for people to pray primarily. God would say to you, are you prepared to be those that will pray in the next revival? Not just walk in it. Not just walk in it, but be the ones who will dig the ground and pray for it and will proclaim it and will ask for it. Are we going to come on on Friday? Are we actually going to come? Am I going to come? Or am I going to say, I'm busy? I mean, it starts at seven. I have to put the kids to sleep. I'm tired. I'm tired. I can't can't find a place for it. I'm tired, Lord. 
I'm tired, I can't find a place. Are we going to come as people, as people sing, as people worship, as we're being called together to come and pray? Uh, that's where the rubber hits the road, just so we know. Are we actually going to turn up and pray? You don't have to come and worship, so like, set up front, sing. I, often when I'm here, like, I just come sit there and pray. While everybody else is worshipping, just come for the quiet. I come for a silence. Are you going to find a place in your car? Are you going to find a place in your office? Are you going to find a place in your house where you just withdraw and say to the kids, when I'm here, please, I'm for you. I'm so for you. And the best way I can be for you is that I find this place of prayer. Don't disturb me. I'm going to pray. I'm going to prioritise in the presence. Are we prepared to sacrifice a lunch break to pray? Are we prepared to sacrifice an, uh, 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 some entertainment in our lives? Oh, do you know what I've done now? I've deleted apps, trust me. I've deleted some apps there. Because that's not healthy. That's not healthy. Some of you, your working patterns are not healthy. You don't even have a day off. You're running over the Sabbath as though it's not an instruction from the Lord. You're just running it over. In our days, um, this was a quote from an American preacher. He said, you need to daily divert. You need to divert daily. You need to withdraw weekly. And you need to get out of here for a period of time annually. We need these rhythms of rest where we can come before God, where we can posture before God, where we can delight ourselves in the Lord, and he will do something amongst us. I want to I finish with this. I'm reading my son, the Narnia books. You know that, right? We, there's like seven books. We're on book five now. That's quite a good attention span for an eight-year-old, by the way. We're on, and, and, the, and when C.S. Lewis wrote the Narnia books, he wrote them with the character Aslan, the lion, in mind to represent Jesus. So I'm teaching my son about the character of Jesus through the writings each time we talk about it. Now, my son has never done this apart from this week. This happened in the last week. I believe God did it to alert my attention to this passage. Aslan did something in the passage that struck him so deeply that the next night, when we were going on to read the next part of the story, he said to me, Daddy, can we go back and read yesterday's again? Can we go back and read what happened yesterday?" Because when you explain to me about Jesus, I, I just need to hear those words again. I just need to understand. I want to understand it. This is an eight-year-old telling you he wants to understand something at a deeper level about Jesus through the writing of C.S. Lewis. Like, that's quite profound, right? Just so you know that. That's quite profound. What has happened in the passage? There is a, a young boy called Eustace. It's, it's in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Eustace, Eustace is a very, very obnoxious young boy. He's really unkind. He's not very nice. He doesn't use his words wise. They're on a, on a secret, uh, on a boat. They've gone out to a land that they don't recognize. Eustace has found a, a secret pot of treasure. He's found a secret cave. Where, I mean, you can imagine, this is a great story, right? He's found a secret cave of treasure. He finds a bracelet of gold, and he puts the bracelet of gold onto his arm. The gold was being guarded by a dragon. Just before he gets there, the dragon dies in front of him. He sneaks in. Look at all this gold. He lays on top of the gold. He puts the bracelet on his arm. And he's just consumed by this gold, what this wealth could do for him. As he's consumed, he sleeps overnight and he turns into a dragon. He wakes up and the gold band is stuck on his arm and he turns into a dragon. He has to go back to his friends and try to convince them that he's a dragon. But he has no idea how to turn back into a boy. And then this is what happens to turn him back into a boy. This is where I'm going to close. But go with me on this. Close your eyes if you need to. Go on, said Edmund. Tell me what happened. Anyway, I looked up and I saw the very last thing I expected. A huge lion slowly came towards me. And the one strange thing was there was no moon last night, but there was moonlit where the lion was. So it came nearer and nearer. I was terribly afraid of him. You may think that being a dragon, I could have knocked any lion out easily. But it wasn't that kind of fear. 
I wasn't afraid of it eating me. I was just afraid of it, if you can understand. Well, it came up close to me and it looked me straight in my eyes. And I shut my eyes tight, but it wasn't any good because it told me to follow him. You mean it spoke to you? I don't know now that you mention it. I don't think it did, but it told me something all the same. And I knew it had to do what he told me. So I got up and I followed him. And he led me a long way into the mountains. And there was this moonlight over and around the lion wherever he went. At last, we came to the top of the mountain. I'd never seen it before. And at the top of the mountain, there was a garden, trees and fruit and everything. In the middle of it, there was a well. This is a picture of heaven, by the way, okay? Just so you know. And Aslan is Jesus. I knew it was a well because you could see the water bubbling up from the bottom of it. But it was a lot bigger than most wells, like a very big round bath with marble steps going down into it. The water was as clear as anything. And I thought if I could get in there and bathe, it would ease the pain in my leg because of the bracelet. But the lion told me I must undress first. Mind you, I don't know if he said those words out loud or not. I was just going to say that I couldn't undress because I haven't got any clothes on. But then I suddenly thought that dragons are scaly sorts of things and the snakes can cast their skins. Oh, of course I thought, that's what the lion means. So I started scratching off myself and the scales came off and all over the place. And then I scratched a little bit deeper and instead of just scales coming off here and there, my whole skin started peeling off beautifully like it does after an illness or as if I was a banana. In a minute or two, I just stepped out of my skin. I could see it lying there beside me looking rather nasty. It was a most lovely feeling though. So I started to go down in the well for my bath. But just as I looked, I was going to put my feet into the water. I saw that they were all hard and rough and wrinkled and scaly, just as they had been before. Oh, that's all right, I said. It only means I have another one, a smaller suit on underneath, the first one, and I'll have to get out of it too. So I scratched and I tore it again, and this underskin peeled off beautifully. And as I stepped out, I left it lying beside the other one, and I went into the well for my bath. But exactly the same thing happened again. And I thought to myself, oh dear, how many skins have I got to take off? For I was longing to bathe my leg. So I scratched away for the third time and I got off a third skin just like the others and I stepped out of it and as soon as I looked at myself in the water I knew that it had been no good. Then the lion said, but I don't know if it spoke, you'll have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat on my back and I let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart and when he began peeling the skin off it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was the pleasure of feeling the stuff just peel off. You know, if you've ever picked the scab off a sore place, it hurts like bilio, but it's such fun to see it coming away. I know exactly what you mean, said Edmund. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd hurt myself the other three times. That only it, that it hadn't hurt this time, and there it was, lying on the grass. Only it was much thicker, much darker, more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there I was, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch, and smaller than I had been before. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much. I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on. And he threw me into the water. It hurt like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why I'd turned into a boy again. You think me simply phony if I told you how I felt about my own arms now. After a bit, the lion took me out and he dressed me. Dressed you? With what? His paws? Well, I don't exactly remember that bit, but he did somehow. I'm now in new clothes, the same as I've got on now, as a matter of fact. And then suddenly I was back here, which makes me think it must have been a dream. No, it wasn't a dream, said Edmund. Why not? Well, there's your clothes, for one thing. And where you've been? Well, you're not a dragon anymore, for another. What do you think it was then, said Eustace? I think you've seen Aslan, said Edmund. I want to tell you in the most profound way I know, which is to read you a story like that and tell you that God wants to do a work in you in prayer 
that will be as vulnerable as you being pinned down and someone removing your scales, but it will transform you from a dragon back into a boy. What God would say to you this morning is, if you are going to be a church that will come into the tender place of prayer with me, you must be prepared for me to do a work. You must lay down your excuses and you must go back to a simple, obedient, childlike faith that knows what it is to pray. Even my boy at eight years old knows that when he does something wrong, it sticks to him like the scales of a dragon. And what he needs is Jesus to come and transform him and give him a new pair of clothes. Even my boy knows that the well was a picture of the water that we go into when we wash away our sin and we're cleansed in baptism. He's seen it with his own eyes in the church. Even he knows that this is the vulnerability that Christ is calling his church to that will usher in a revival that will spread from the Cape right across the continent. And I want to ask you this morning whether you're prepared in your own life to drop your excuses as to why you don't pray, as God has asked me to, and to raise up a shawl over your head and pray. And if you don't pray at all right now, if you pray for two minutes a day, you would have prayed more this last week than you have done in the last month. I'm just not asking you for a time. I'm asking you for a posture. Would we posture our heart that prioritizes prayer? Would we lay aside our apps? Would we lay aside our commitments? Would we lay aside our entertainment? Would we lay aside our food and fast? Would we lay aside every other commitment that we've got? And would we as a people prioritize prayer? When we do, when we do, we may just be those that usher in the revival that's been so often prophesied. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. Lord, even now our minds, because we overrun, begin, Lord, I've got to go to lunch, I've, I've got to get to this, I've got to do that. Lord, we want to posture and prioritize you. We want to tell you that you're worthy of the best time we had this Sunday morning. We want to give you the best time we had of today. We want to give you our best energies of today, Lord. Lord, I want to drop the apps. I want to drop the focusing on the news. I want to drop the focusing on social media. I want to drop my uh, attention being, being taken from me. I want to drop the idea that my kids need my time more than they need my prayer. I want to drop these, these excuses that I would place before prayer every single day and every single week. And God, as a church, we want to be a church that will be known as a house of prayer for people of all nations. We want to be known as a place that prays. We want to be known as a place that is unusual, where people would go, you go to that church, it's multicultural. They pray together, they eat together, they worship together, they, 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 they repent to one another, and they, they seek the glory of God together for the, for the nation, God. We want to be at a place that we'll see revival spring from. We want our sons and daughters to do feats beyond what we can ask or imagine. We want to see prayer prioritized in our own lives, in the life of our church, and in the life of our city, God. We want to see prayer prioritized in our parliament. We want to see prayer prioritized in our places of work. We want to see prayer prioritized in our business. We want to see prayer prioritized in our schools. We want to see prayer prioritized in our homes. And above all else, God, we want to see prayer in our own lives exponentially grow and deepen, God. Would we see the sick healed in this place? Would we see the lame walk in this place? Would we see the blind see in this place? Would we see uh, the, the, the sex workers restored in this place? Would we see uh, uh, the, the, the homeless restored uh, in this place, God? Would we see those who are naked and afraid and ashamed clothed by you, Jesus? Would we get to that vulnerable place where we are able to do this thing called church together with a deep, deep understanding, Lord? That which we have that are scales that we're hiding right now, we expose them to you, Lord, and say, yes, it will hurt, but would you remove them from our lives in Jesus' name? Would you transform us into a people of prayer? 
would you transform us that our, our church will be known as a place of prayer? Start this Friday, God, we pray. Would we gather to pray? Would we gather? Start this afternoon in our homes, Lord. Would we find our shawls, find our places, and, and just put them over our head and find our way with you? For those of us who've never prayed, lead us in how to pray. For those of us who have forgotten how to pray, remind us, God. For those of us who haven't prioritized prayer, help us to prioritize it, Lord. But above all else, help us to pray in Jesus' name. Amen.